it's almost as if we're like this silent population. We're just numbers. Our stories aren't usually captured. And yes, every story is different, but to see my family story, my son's story on screen was so like validating and so welcomed by them because they never saw what they went through, a significant part of their family and their history represented on film or on television or whatever. So that to me was a real eye-opener. Everybody's gotta eat and nobody likes getting sick. That's why heroes toil in the shadows, keeping your food safe at all points, from the supply chain to the point of sale. Join industry veterans Francine L. Shaw and Matt Ragusi for a deep dive into food safety. It all boils down to one golden rule. Don't eat poop. Don't eat poop. Hi, we are here with the main man, the legend, Darren Detweiler. <laughs> Food Safety Consortium. How are you, Darren? I am good. I am good. This is the first full day here at Food Safety Consortium, and I have already led a roundtable discussion, and I've been on two panels. Yeah, and last time we interviewed you was at Food Safety Summit, right? Food Safety Summit in Rosemont, Illinois. That's right. And now we are another named destination place called Parsippany, New, New Jersey. Jersey. <laughs> A great yeah. place to leave. <laughs> I think we're all tired at this point. Yes, we are all tired. We were just talking about how many interviews we've done today. I think we've done like a dozen. So, yeah. So, we've done a lot of talk about food safety in the consortium at this point. And Darren and I were talking a while ago when we were hanging out here in the hallway about the bizarre things that we have on our telephones, the pictures that we have on our phones, just random things that we see in our travels. We travel a lot. We're through a lot of airports, a lot of restaurants and things like that. Darren was traveling through an airport yesterday and he came across a unique site. I did. I was at LAX and I was on my way to my gate and it was probably 10, 1030 in the morning. And because it's a six hour flight, I was going to grab a couple bites to eat a deal. And there was like, imagine like an, an oval kind of an island or like a racetrack shape island, refrigerated, a couple shelves tall. And it's surrounded, you know, the circumference is like sandwiches and salads and hard boiled eggs and cheeses and hummus and perishable consumables, right? And being who I am, it should not be a surprise that I took a look at the Two different kinds of thermometer, an analog and a digital. And the, oh, and by the way, some guy is loading this now. Some guy is loading the items into this. And I look at the digital and it says 49 degrees. And I look at the analog and it's, the pointer is clearly in the, the red. And I took a picture of it, thus it's on my phone. But then I was asking, is there someone in charge here? And there was no one saying that they were in charge but I was pointing it out to him. I even brought a person to take a look at it. And I said, this is here and this is here. I told them why this is a problem. And then they were like, hey. And they got someone else who was behind the a door, I guess, in a, their storage room or something like that. And uh, this person came and go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We wrote that up about a week or two ago that there's a problem. And I'm pretty <laughs> sure I'm pretty sure they're going to take care of it in the near future. And I was like, well, maybe you want to load these things on the other. Because the other side was in a good temperature range. But that was the side that was facing inward. But the side that's facing outwards, 
towards the, what do you call that, where the people are walking, the, the inner sidewalk of the airport deal, the corridor, that's where the temperature was out of range. And so, yeah, I took a picture of this and it just got me to thinking there's another person who's here who sent me a picture of, he went to the grocery store and couldn't believe that there were packages of ground beef sitting next to bags of shredded lettuce at the grocery store in the refrigerator aisle. And he was telling how he tried to tell someone, get out of here, you're, why are you making a big deal about this? But then talking with you that, wow, there's a trend here. We tend to have a lot of things on our phones. <laughs> Things that the average person doesn't have on their phone. If you go through your phone and you're scrolling, it's, wow, that's a random picture of a vent in the ceiling somewhere. <laughs> and what's that black stuff? <laughs> that black stuff hanging off that vent in that ceiling in the restaurant. <laughs> it's like, why do we do this? <laughs> well, and that's, it, it's fascinating that they were like, th this is where I think the food safety training has gone wrong. This would be a perfect example of food safety training gone wrong. We noticed the problem. We wrote an incident report. It's going to get fixed later on this week, but we're still loading it full of food. And so that's the difference between what to do and why you're doing it. And obviously the why you're doing it has been missed because there's perishable food in there that can get people sick if the, the temperatures are out of range. Right. Well, even if someone's, let's say in a world where someone every hour goes and I don't know, records the temperature. We'd be so lucky if someone even did that. Someone every hour goes and, and writes in a spreadsheet what the temperature is, and someone may look at it down the way. But how does someone work with this kind of a scenario? And we talk a lot about the last mile, right? Food and food safety's journey. And you would think that if you're going to go to the effort of putting thermometers there, maybe you need to train the people who are going to also be there. What they're there for, why they're important, and what to do if it doesn't fit within the right range. So this is what I want to know. If indeed they do have a temperature log and they're filling out the temperature log, I'd love to know what the temperatures are that are on that temperature log. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're probably all over the map. <laughs> That's what I want to know, because I bet they're within the proper zone. I bet that they say they're 41 degrees or below. Oh, Oh, you think they're, you're falsifying information. Well, think about it. Think about it. I've been in conversations where there are people who are complaining about their supervisors because they're like, I don't want to see any bad numbers. Okay, so it's always 39. Right. It's always 40. Everyone. And it, it never writes, you never write 49 right. down on it. I don't want to see it. Don't tell me. I don't want to see bad news. And don't you dare miss a temperature check. So they don't. Yeah. They don't miss yeah. one. That's very interesting. So, okay, when we first talked to you in May at Food Safety Summit, poison had not come out yet, but you had already seen a screening of it and seen what it was going to be like. And so you were talking to us, but not giving us details. Now poison has come out. And do you, what do you think? Do you think it was a bigger audience than you thought? And what has been the response of poison in your mind? And how do you think it went? funny we're talking about things on our phones if you look at social media on your phone or on your laptop i think because when i went to the premiere it was in a theater but that was not how people are normally going to be watching they're in their home and i'm not going to be in everyone's home but you start looking at social media and look at how people are reacting to this and look at the tiktok videos and what segments are they talking about and it's very surreal to see some stranger out there has made a tiktok video with a section where i'm speaking 
And it's like an out-of-body experience because I'm like seeing how someone is viewing me and how people are talking about me or that they're talking about this segment of the documentary or that segment of the documentary or or this other segment of the documentary. What are they picking up on? And in some cases, it's people are talking about the scenario about the cross-contamination from the chicken in the kitchen or people are talking about the chicks going down the conveyor belt in the chicken company or people are talking about the romaine lettuce and the, the proximity of the cattle operations to the lettuce. So people are picking up on different areas, and it could be, uh, I have no idea why someone was more disturbed by X as, as, a, as opposed to Y. I do get a lot of questions. I do find it funny that, do, if, if, I, I don't know if I've told you this, what is the number one comment from, or question, same kind of thing, that I get from strangers who've watched this film and they see me and now they want to talk to me about it. Cause I brought up that cantaloupe is the number one thing that I don't eat. And they're always like cantaloupe. Really? Why? What's wrong? What could possibly be wrong with cantaloupe? And then I, I explained to them cause it's webbed and you can't, yeah, uh... you can't clean it properly. And it's at a pH that really helps grow bacteria rather quickly. And there's just, there's no way to clean it. So it's just something that I avoid. I did mention sprouts. No one ever asks me about sprouts and bag lettuce. No one really asks me about bag lettuce, but it's an interesting experience to have gone through because A, it was an experience to spend a two and a half years preparing, supporting, helping behind the it scenes. Was that long, two and a half years. Oh, yeah. Well, the pandemic really slowed things down. Realized that I talk with people in late 2020, early 2021, and Way before we even started filming, I was doing like conversations with the producer and the director. We were going through incidents and stories and going through my first book, Food Safety, Past, Present, and Predictions, because it also provided a look at the 30 years, what's happened, major events, major political changes, policy changes, and major outbreaks and recalls. And so it was a learning process for them as well. As they're trying to craft this story, they're learning about things. And of course, when we finally did get to that point where I sat down with the crew, had to do all the nasal swabs and wearing masks. It was in the middle of the pandemic. And so there was limited exposure. There was limited people that could be there. We're talking about things we had already talked through, but more questions are coming up. And the, the directors sitting there with people like on a Zoom call because they weren't allowed to be in the room where we were filming. And so we're taking breaks all the time and they're like, okay, what do you think about this? So it was almost like they're on like test audience with what I was saying, but there were so many times where I'm going down, I'm telling the story and I'm answering questions and they're like, oh my God, I had no idea. I had no idea. We didn't know about that. Even though, again, I'd spent hours and hours talking with them and giving them resources. So to see what ended up making it into the final version, first off, can't believe I was in it as much as I was in it. A lot of times I'm talking with journalists. So I'll talk with them for an hour and it's one or two sentences in the article, I think. So to see myself on screen there for so long was, that was a surprise. But to see how people are reacting to it, there's no one way because there are people who work in food safety that are saying that they feel validated in what they're doing. There are people that are executives that are asking questions about it because they're worried about what consumers are going to be thinking now. But one of the things that still gets me uh a little choked up is the amount of messages and emails I've received from families who've been went through what I've been through a child in the hospital or they've buried a child. And they're saying, look, 
you just don't share pictures of these things with your family and your relatives and your friends. And it's almost as if we're like this silent population. We're just numbers. Our stories aren't usually captured. And yes, every story is different, but to see my family story, my son's story on screen was so like validating and so welcomed by them because they never saw what they went through significant part of their family and their history represented on film or on television or whatever. So that to me was a real eye opener. And I realized too, that there are a lot more people out there with stories and perspectives. And while there's a side of me that I am honored that I was able to tell the story that I told and I, selfishly think about that in terms of in a way it almost helps immortalize my son's life and his struggle. Right. But I realized that there's a bit of a responsibility that I have going into this. I was thinking about this. And even after the fact, I still think about it, that the story, the way I told the story, the elements of the story that I told, I'm potentially acting as a voice for thousands of families that don't have this opportunity to share that story in such a context. Thousands of families every, every year. year. Right. Yeah. And imagine we could talk about this in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I know it's a different kind of a thing, but imagine going through something like this and never seeing, you don't see things like this on, we have all these hospital shows. You don't see stories like this or in Grey's Anatomy yeah, and Chicago, whatever it is. You don't see these stories play out. You see all these other stories and you're so used to seeing a subdural hematoma on whatever hospital show you can call it being the armchair doctor that you are, but you never see, ah, it's a foodborne pathogen. Oh, this is someone with E. coli. You need, why don't you never see these storylines? So I, you and I were talking again a while ago and I told you that I was asked if it was necessary for the stories to be as graphic as they were. And I was taken aback by that, but yeah, it, yes, it was because so many times those stories aren't told and it, they're real world stories. And that's why foodborne illnesses happen. So to not tell those stories is eliminating the reason that these illnesses happen. And if we don't tell these stories, then we're missing the point. I think this was you I was saying this to. I think that people act like we're telling the stories and being graphic for a sense of sensationalism. And that's not the that's not why we tell the stories. It's not about sensationalism. Well, you know what the opposite of it is? When you see things like, and could result in illness. Yeah, and we're always seeing these kinds of, and this could happen and this can happen. Someone could get sick. And of course, we're of this mindset of, yeah, there's a lot more than just could get sick. But why is it that when we see, and there's been a lot of conversation here about the difference between the food side and the drug side of the FDA. You ever see those commercials for some medicine and yeah, they're like, yeah. can result in this, but we don't talk about that the way with food. Big part of the pun, but we sugarcoat the, the likelihood and severity. So those were my words exactly. It's like, why do we need to consistently sugarcoat it when we talk about food? There's no point in sugarcoating the fact that cockroaches were falling from the ceiling or that rats were running overhead. Well, like, why do I need to sugarcoat that? Because that's what's making people sick. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't see the point when it's like, this was the real world part of my job. Am I saying that every facility was like that? No, I'm not. There are a lot of good places 
But I think it's important that these stories are told and this is how people get sick. This is why they get sick and that there are operators that operate like this. Do you remember that TV show Chips? The California Highway Patrol with John and Ponch on their motorcycles. Oh, we're not talking about Pringles. No, we're not talking about food. <laughs> Strangely, we're talking about we're talking about yeah, uh, the motorcycle, the motorcycle yeah, right? Yeah. So during that time in the '80s, when that show was on, this late '70s and, and early '80s, the actual California Highway Patrol they put out a magazine, all things, and they made sure it got into school libraries. And like their page seven photo was always this gruesome, gruesome crash. There's a foot in the left lane and there's blood across the median kind of stuff. Gruesome crash. And I remember there being this thing where they were being criticized. Why are you showing the pictures of these? And they're saying because there's TV shows like Chips that are sugarcoating what car crashes look like. And everyone walks away because it makes for good television. thing. And we want to make sure that people understand that. These are the consequences for drunk driving, for speeding, for joyriding, all that kind of stuff. So these are the pictures we show. And it's like, it's strange that a police organization had to make a magazine that included photos of reality because there was a disconnect between reality of what these accidents, crime scenes, accident scenes were looking like and what was being portrayed on television. It's the same kind of thing. When we talk about food safety, we often talk about numbers. We don't talk about names and families and stories. We rarely see photos. We'll see after incident reports and statistics from the CDC. Those are important, but they're not the complete story. The stories that I typically tell, I share that I think the role that I played in the documentary was to try to make sure that if they're going to tell the story, They tell the full story so people understand this is not just a mild inconvenience. I'm using air quotes. I don't know why, because this is just audio recording. But my finger quotes around the, the, yes, the, the mild inconvenience. And there are some serious and grave consequences for failures in food safety. Right. I agree. And I think it's also important to shed light that everything out there is not perfect. It's just, it's not. And the real, just the real stories all need to be told. You know, from all perspectives. You and I react to these photos, but I think perhaps the photo you showed of the black, I don't know if it was mold or dust on an air vent, that was mold. It's as if people who work there, do they become numb to it? Do they become blind to it? So I always said this, you know how when you work in a facility, you walk past, there's a starts as a small black spot on the wall. And every day that small black spot gets bigger and bigger and you walk past that spot every day. So you don't notice it getting bigger. And before you know it, the whole wall is black and it's dirty, but because you've walked past it as it continued to grow, you didn't notice it happening. And that's why I always felt it was important for management to be transferred occasionally, because if not, those blinders stayed on and you didn't notice the things that were happening behind you because things continued to grow and spiral out of control. And you didn't notice because you were there every day. But as new blood would be transferred in and out, you, the new people would notice, oh my God, that entire wall's black. How does nobody notice that? So it's almost like someone could equate an external auditor, an external third-party inspector. It's like when you wrote Who Watches the Kitchen, you had an external editor because you were looking at these and you look at this, you might not notice a spelling mistake or the way you formatted it or some area of concern that someone else puts their eyes on it. And now, oh, okay, I'm glad you saw that because I've been looking at this for so long, I didn't even notice that. I happens to me all the time. And I think it's important when we look at the value 
of inspectors, those external auditors, inspectors, et cetera, is because a fresh set of eyes could be exactly what you need to notice that black mark or to notice that digital or analog thermometer out of spec. Right, so you've been to Food Safety Consortium a couple of times at least because I saw you here last year. Uh, I think except for virtual during the pandemic, I've been to the last... Ten of these, <laughs> or so. What is so? You, and you go to. Conferences. I used to go to Schaumburg when it was in Schaumburg too. <laughs> That's the only reason one goes to Schaumburg. That's north of O'Hare. <laughs> what is your favorite part of Food Safety Consortium, and where could you see opportunities for improvement? I think my favorite part is it's a smaller venue, it's a smaller attendance, and there's people that have opportunity. You go to a large event like the Food Safety Summit or IEFP. Nothing wrong with them. But you're going to be like you and then a thousand or two thousand people between you and FDA, USD, uh, a leader, right? Here, you're inches, feet away from these people. They're sitting next to you at the table during you know, a session when they're not speaking. So it really brings people together. It always amazes me, too, when you have an opportunity to meet with the people that are within your industry. And it's I don't want to take away from the serious nature of food safety, but it's almost like a high school reunion when you have that opportunity to, to meet up with the people who do your same job and share stories or share photos on your phone. A deal. We need this to make sure that whether it's validation or external motivation to build up our own internal inspiration to, to keep going. There's a lot of reasons why one could lose interest or patience or lose the passion in what they do and not be able to find the courage within them to keep at what they're doing in terms of making our food as safe as possible. To come here and walk away with some information is great. But I think walking away with a heart that is just pumping with passion and courage in terms of what you do and how you can potentially spread that to other people to help motivate and inspire others to, to do what they do, to me, that's the biggest takeaway from an event like this. That is perfect. Right. And so if there was one thing that you could change about it, what would it be? I wish that we would bring some people from like the National Science Teachers Association. I wish we brought more teachers. Like STEM teachers? Exactly. Anyone who could benefit from hearing some of these people, meeting some of these people, participating in some of the discussion groups or whatever, and bring that. Because we had a session here earlier this morning, the idea of what do we do in terms of consumer education and K-12 education? And so, well, why aren't we including anyone from the world of K-12 education into these opportunities? If I had the ability to wave a magic wand, I would say that imagine a conference where oh, you're buying a booth and you're bringing so many people here, you get three free tickets. But if you bring a teacher, we'll throw in a free ticket for a teacher, a STEM teacher oh, kind of a deal, really? you know? Yeah. And because a teacher's not going to be able to afford to go to a lot of these yeah. events. They're too expensive. Even a professor, there's only so much I could afford a deal. But to be able to include these, when you look at the idea of the multiplication factor, the idea that imagine a STEM teacher being inspired because of what they gained from here to go back to their classroom, go back to the drawing boards and figure out a way to bring in, whether it's a lab or an activity or even just a discussion about food safety for teenagers, the ones who are then going to likely be going into the industry or they buy their first car, they, they buy whatever they get their first car or they go out, they're going to be buying food, they're going to be making decisions. And the idea of there's one of those lifelong lessons that could be extremely valuable to them. And so 
Looking at the, the multiplier factor of bringing in any kind of teachers that could add to this, I think would be very powerful. Well, that leads me to probably our final question, and that's, have you seen an increase in interest in your master's degree that you're at Northeastern that you run due to Poisoned? So I, ha- I have had students in my current courses that they, I, I have had students said, I took your course because it said you were at Northeast University. I looked you up and I realized you were teaching a course. So I took your course. Wow. That's so cool. I've had people come to events where I'm speaking because they said they saw me and that I was associated with Poisoned. And so they wanted to come out and see me. And that was like an eye opener, right? But I think that, oh, in my university, I don't want to say they didn't care about me before, but they really, the, the media relations people, re, I'm their best friend now. A great time to renegotiate that contract. <laughs> uh, well, unfortunately, that's not really how it works at the university level. When it comes to the world of publishing and media kind of stuff, I did find out that it's from the media relations people that it's like, there's me and then there's everyone else. And I'm like, you mean like I'm different than them? So no, there's... Your number is 50% of our work. The other 50% is the sum total of all the other professors, kind of a, a way of looking at it. And they're like, how are you in the media so often? How are you on all these podcasts and webinars and all these different things? I'm like, well, it's part of what I do. It's, it's not like it takes away from my teaching. If anything, it's the networking and the conversations and, and the things that I bring, sometimes bring it to my students in the classroom, even though I teach online because... How on earth am I able to go to all these things if I had to be in the classroom? So I teach online, right? But to open up my network to them in many cases, is that's also powerful. You have a lot of people who are changing careers, they're starting their careers, and they don't have a network. They don't have mentors. They don't have the ability to necessarily hear words of wisdom from pretty much everyone here or a deal. But to bring that into the fold for a class that I'm teaching, that's really cool too. And in a way, it validates and gives me credibility in terms of I'm not just someone who I've been out of the business for decades and now all you is teach. No, I'm still involved. My students know that I'm in, where am I? I'm in Parsippany, New Jersey <laughs> right now. My students knew that I was in Orlando when I was in Orlando. They knew I was in New Orleans when I was in New Orleans. And I'm like, it's whatever, it's five o'clock in the evening and I'm in my hotel room with a virtual background, but they know I'm on the road, but I'm still teaching them because it's an online class. And as long as I have my computer and internet, I can do it. That's awesome. We have some advice for you. Don't eat poop. 